One of the things we need to be careful about as Christians is the tendency or possibility of being reactionary. What I mean is it is easy for us to see unhealthy extremes within Christianity and respond to that by going to an unhealthy extreme on the, on the other end of the spectrum. For example, there are some Christians who have observed worship gatherings in which people jump up and down wildly, roll around on the ground, or claim to be slain in the Spirit. Those kinds of activities clearly violate 1 Corinthians 14.33, which says God is not the author of confusion or disorder, and those activities violate 1 Corinthians 14.40, which says let all things be done decently and in order. In response to that kind of extreme chaos, however, some Christians react and wrongly assume that we should have no emotion in worship. They think it's wrong to lift your hands to the Lord, which the Bible speaks of often. Or they think it's wrong to clap your hands or close your eyes in contemplative worship. Those kinds of responses or that kind of position is reactionary and doesn't line up with a biblically accurate view of what Scripture says. Another area where we have this tendency is our reaction to the topic of judgment. Because some Christians have overemphasized the subject of God's judgment and have ignored all that Scripture has to say about the love of God, it's easy for us to shy away from talking about the reality and the certainty of God's fearsome judgment. And because Christians are often presented in the media as overzealous terrorists who love to say that God is going to bring judgment someday, it is understandable that we would want to back away from being seen as those kinds of Christians. However, we need to be very careful about overreacting and moving toward a position that is not biblically balanced and biblically accurate. The fact is, that Scripture has much to say about the future judgment of God. Scripture has a great deal to say about the love of God, but it also has a lot to say about the reality and certainty of God's future fearsome judgment. That is the focus of the text to which we come this morning in our continuing study of 2 Peter. So please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2 if you are not already there. 2 Peter chapter 2, and please follow along as I read verses 4 through 11, although we won't make it all the way through all these verses in this message. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, or literally Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then... 
The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. As you can see from reading through this passage, Peter's focus is on the subject of God's future judgment and its certainty. But Peter isn't just speaking about judgment of mankind in general. He has in mind a specific group of people. Now, it is true that someday the Lord is going to judge all people who have rejected him and his ways. But Peter's concern in this chapter is a specific group of people. His focus is on false teachers who bring in destructive heresies and who live shameful lives and who exploit people for financial gain. That is specifically what Peter has just been saying in verses 1 through 3. He says in verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words, For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. These are the people that Peter has in mind when he writes verses 4 through 11 about God's future judgment. His focus is on false teachers who bring in destructive heresies and who live shameful lives and who exploit people for financial gain. Beloved, I hope by now that you don't have to be convinced that there are false teachers like this under the umbrella of Christianity. There are false teachers who spout heresy in their messages. They live shameful lives in private, and they make merchandise of God's people. If it weren't so inappropriate, I could tell you stories about big-name Christian leaders, and I put the term Christian in quotes, big name leaders in Christianity who live flagrantly immoral lives. They are big names on Christian TV. They make lots of money. Their sermons are about prosperity and healing, and they are terribly immoral. It is exactly who Peter describes here in verses 1 through 3. And in verses 4 through 11, he says that it is absolutely, positively certain that God is going to judge these false teachers someday. They will not get away with what they are doing. To reinforce that point or support that point, Peter gives several examples of God's judgment in the past as proof that God will certainly judge in the future. Peter gives three examples of judgment here in this text we just read, but we'll only have time to look at the first one in this morning's message, and Lord willing, in the others in the weeks to come. 
Notice what Peter says. It's a very long, uh, complicated sentence. You probably noticed that as I read it. He begins it by saying in verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to literally Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. As you can see, the sentence is not complete. He's only setting up what he wants to say later. But this is his intro into this paragraph on judgment. The first example of judgment that Peter lists in this text is the angels who sinned. Now, it would be easy to assume that Peter is speaking of all the angels that rebelled with Satan in his original rebellion. But the description that Peter gives here lets us know that he is not referring to all the angels who rebelled with Satan originally. The reason why we know that is because it is a fact that all the angels that sinned with Satan originally have not been delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Fallen angels or demons are free to roam around this world, as Scripture repeatedly tells us. So Peter has in mind a specific group of fallen angels that were judged by God in a unique way. What group does Peter have in mind? What fallen angels or demons, what group of fallen angels or demons is Peter talking about? Just about all the translations, all of our English translations, use the word hell in this verse. But unfortunately, that is probably not the best translation of this Greek word and this verse. This is not the Greek word Hades, which most Christians are familiar with. This is not the Greek word Gehenna, which is the word used in the New Testament to refer to the lake of fire. Both of those terms, Hades, Gehenna, are used in the New Testament to refer to a place of fiery judgment. Hades is the place of fiery judgment where people go today if they die without Christ. And Gehenna is the ultimate permanent lake of fire where the lost of all the ages will be judged for eternity. But as I said, neither of those terms is used in this verse. Not only that, it is important to notice that this verse says that the angels in in view here, the angels that Peter has in mind, are in chains of darkness, and they are being reserved for judgment. In other words, they are being held for a future judgment. They are not experiencing that judgment yet. They are not experiencing it now, but they will experience it in the future. They are experiencing a judgment, but not their ultimate judgment. It is like a convicted criminal being held in prison while he awaits his punishment. That's what Peter is describing here. These demons are being held in Tartarus, which is the Greek word Peter uses here, while they are awaiting their future judgment. Again, let me emphasize, this is not Hades or Gehenna or the lake of fire. This is the pit or the abyss spoken of in Revelation chapter 9. This is a group of angels that sinned and experience some kind of temporary judgment while awaiting permanent judgment. To what group of angels is Peter referring? By comparing Peter's words here with what Jude has to say about a group of angels, it becomes clear that Peter has in mind a group of fallen angels that sinned in Genesis chapter 6. 
Turn over to the little book of Jude, just prior to the book of Revelation. Find the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and back up to the little book of Jude. Here in the book of Jude, just like 2 Peter 2, we are given three examples of judgment as, a, as illustrations of the fact that God is going to judge sin and evil in the future. Jude's second example is the one that interests us in this message. Notice his second example beginning in verse 6. He says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Two different times in this verse, Jude emphasizes that this particular judgment came upon angels who did not stay in their own realm. They did not stay where they belonged. They did not stay where God had placed them or how God had created them. He says they did not keep their own domain and they left their own abode. This is not a description of the original sin in which one-third of the angels rebelled with Satan. This is something different. This is angels not keeping their proper domain and leaving their own abode. And we also know that this is not referring to all the angels that rebelled with Satan originally because this verse says that these angels have been judged by being reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. You see, beloved, you cannot say that about all the angels that rebelled with Satan. They are not reserved in everlasting chains. They are free and roaming around the universe. That's why Scripture warns us about their activity and to resist them. So this group of fallen angels or demons is only a subgroup of the larger group that rebelled. What did these fallen angels do to end up being reserved in everlasting chains? Jude tells us, just as Peter tells, told us, they did not keep their own domain, and they left their own abode. Specifically, to what does that refer? Well, verse 7, next verse, gives us a clue, because it uses a comparative term. It says, as... Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So the angels of verse 6 did as Sodom and Gomorrah did. They gave themselves over to sexual immorality and they went after strange flesh. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah did not keep their own domain and left their own abode by giving themselves over to homosexuality, these angels that Jude is talking about and Peter is talking about did not keep their own domain and they left their own abode by cohabiting with women in Genesis chapter 6. Let me show you this. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6 to see what Peter and Jude are talking about. All the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6. Verse 1 tells us, Now it came to pass, 
when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, verse 1 opens this story, and it, it really doesn't give us anything unusual or difficult to comprehend. It's very straightforward. The first verse says that as the population of the earth began to increase, many daughters were born. Very straightforward. The difficulty comes in verse 2, where we read that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. One of the keys to understanding this verse is the phrase, the sons of God. Interestingly, please hear this, when that phrase is used elsewhere in Hebrew Scripture, the the Hebrew phrase, B'nai Elohim, it is a reference to spirit beings. Let me show you what I mean by having us turn over to Job chapter 1. We'll come back to Genesis, but turn over to the book of Job. If you find Psalms, which is a large book there in the Old Testament, back up one book to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 6 tells us, Now there was a day when the sons of God, there's our key phrase, B'nai Elohim, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture because it takes us from events happening on the earth to events happening up in heaven. The first five verses of this chapter tell us about Job and his life here on earth. But the scene shifts from earth to heaven in verse 6. The angelic beings are gathering before the throne of God to give an account of their activity. And Job tells us, or the writer of Job tells us, Satan was among them. There are many implications we could draw from this scene, but... For now, I want us to notice that this verse uses the same phrase as Genesis 6-2. It uses the phrase, the sons of God, or in Hebrew, B'nai Elohim. And it is clear that this phrase is referring to spirit beings. We see the same thing in chapter 2 of Job. Just turn to the very next chapter. Verse 1 says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Again we see the phrase, The sons of God, B'nai Elohim, sons of God. This phrase used to refer to spirit beings. So when we encounter this phrase in Genesis 6-2, there is good reason to believe that it is referring to spirit beings. Angels, whether holy angels or fallen angels, spirit beings. Now with this in mind, go back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 says, It came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, here's our phrase, that the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, spirit beings, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. 
This verse does something else to alert us to the fact that something unusual is being described in this text. Not only does it use the phrase, the sons of God, it sets this group in contrast with the other group mentioned in the verse, namely the daughters of men. So that's a way for the writer of Genesis to let us know that we are dealing with two vastly different groups. One group was the sons of God. The other group was the daughters of men. One group was spirit beings. The other group was human beings. The human beings were females. The spirit beings were demons, as we saw from 2 Peter and Jude. So this verse tells us that these spirit beings took wives for themselves. Now immediately we are confronted with a problem. How can spirit beings get married to human beings? To answer that question, turn over just a few chapters to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, this passage shows us that spirit beings, angels or demons, can take on human form and function just like human beings. Chapter 18, verse 1, Then the Lord appeared to him, that is, Abram, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, do as you have said. Now, I want you to notice this story very carefully. Verse 2 refers to these visitors as men, but it becomes clear as you read the rest of the story that these three men were actually the Lord himself and two angels. Notice verse 6. So Abraham turned into the tent to Sarah And said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to the young men, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared, set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. You see, these were not three mere men. This was the Lord himself and two angels. Let's keep reading the story. Verse 16, Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since... uh, Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done according altogether according to the outcry against it, that it has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Notice that. So here, these two men, you can put that in quotes, leave Abraham is there before the Lord, and as you probably know the story, Abraham Abraham had a conversation with the Lord in which he asked about sparing the city if there were enough righteous people in it. Skip down to verse 33, last verse of this chapter. It says, So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. But what about the other two men who were there earlier? Chapter 19 tells us about them. It says, verse 1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then, then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Now the fascinating thing about this story is that the text regularly refers to these two angels as men because they had taken the form of men, they walked like men, talked like men, ate like men. They functioned like men, yet they were clearly angels. Verse 1 calls them angels. Verse 15 calls them angels. Furthermore, their supernatural powers of judgment, as displayed in striking the people with blindness and in their role of destroying Sodom, prove they were angels. So this passage shows us that spirit beings are able to take on human form and function just like men. Therefore, it is not impossible to see how the spirit beings in Genesis 6 were able to take on human form and marry women. But there's another question that comes to mind. Why would these demonic spirits do this in Genesis 6? I believe the demons in Genesis 6 married women to produce an unusual offspring in an attempt to try to destroy the messianic line so that the Messiah could not be born in the human race. 
I believe it was a satanic attempt to pre prevent the Messiah from being born in the human race to redeem sinners in the human race. After all, God had already said in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would someday crush the head of the serpent. God had already predicted the coming of the Savior who would be born of a woman. So if Satan wanted to try to prevent that from happening, then one of the best ways to do that would be to have his demons take on human form and marry women. Number one, that would prevent those very women from giving birth to the Messiah because they're married to demons. And number two, if they were able to produce an offspring, the offspring would not be truly and genuinely human. In other words, it could eventually distort the human race as a race, and that would prevent the Savior from joining the human race to redeem people from their sin. So I believe that is what is being described in Genesis chapter 6. And if there were children born from these unions, all of that offspring was destroyed in the flood that came 120 years later and wiped out everyone except for Noah and his family of eight. Some people object to this interpretation because they say it contradicts the word of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, where he said, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But there is no contradiction. In that verse, Jesus is saying that angels don't get married to each other in heaven. Angels are not a race, and they do, they do not procreate as a race. But that verse doesn't say anything about demons taking on human form and functioning like men. So I believe this is the group of angels that Peter has in mind in 2 Peter chapter 2. Now let's go way back over there to our text near the end of the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 2. To further support this interpretation, notice what Peter says immediately after his statement here in 2 Peter 2, 4. He, he, he moves from these angels in verse 4 to the next example of judgment in his mind, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. But notice what he does in verse 5. He says, and, after giving this example of the angels who sinned, and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Isn't it interesting that Peter mentions a group of angels in verse 4, and then he mentions the people of Noah's day in verse 5. Both of those groups are right there in Genesis 6 where we were a moment ago. Not only that, but notice the next example of judgment that Peter gives in verse 6. He says, "...and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes..." condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So notice what Peter has done. He has mentioned in verse 4 a group of angels who sinned in a unique way. And then he has, he has mentioned the example of the people in Noah's day, the flood. And then he has brought up the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It all fits together. All three of those are somewhat related in that the angels of Genesis 6 did not keep their own domain. They left their own abode just as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah would do years later. And that was part of the reason why God sent a worldwide flood. All of that is strong reason to believe that the angels to which Peter is referring in verse 4 is the group of angels in Genesis 6 who cohabited with women. 
both Peter and Jude tell us that God judged those fallen angels by casting them down to Tartarus and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. They were judged by being incarcerated, as it were, so they are not free to roam around and wreak havoc in our world. You may remember that there were demons who feared this very thing when they encountered Jesus during his ministry and they begged him not to send them there. That is further proof that not all demons or fallen angels are bound, not all are bound, but there are some that have been judged by being cast down to Tartarus and delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. There's a sense in which they've already been judged by being bound, but they are awaiting their final judgment in the lake of fire. Peter tells us one other interesting thing about this group of fallen angels, and that is found in his first letter. So back up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The last phrase of this verse says, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The King James Version, New King James Version, and NIV translations capitalize the word Spirit at the end of this verse. The New American Standard Bible, New American Standard Update, and the ESV translations do not capitalize it. Which translations are correct? I believe the New American Standard Bible, New American Standard Update, and the ESV translations are correct for not capitalizing the word spirit in this verse. Let me explain why. First of all, the Greek manuscripts do not solve this issue because all the words are completely capitalized in the Greek manuscripts. Therefore, you need to look for other clues for the proper interpretation. In this case, the context argues for not capitalizing the word. The contrast in this verse is between Jesus' body and his inner spirit. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in his spirit with a small s. When Jesus was put to death in the flesh, his spirit was made alive which could indicate that his spirit experienced spiritual death when he became sin and then was made alive once that debt was paid. Either way, we know that the inner spirit of Jesus was alive at the end of the crucifixion because remember what he said. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So this is not referring to the Holy Spirit, but rather to the human spirit of Jesus. That's the contrast of the verse. And then Peter tells us what Jesus did after his body was dead, but his spirit was still alive. Verse 19. He says, by which, his human spirit, by whom, by which, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. As you probably know, this passage is one that is used to support all sorts of crazy beliefs and dogmas. Some take this passage to mean that Jesus preached to people who were in hell to give them a second chance to believe and be saved, which contradicts Scripture. Others take this passage as support for their view that Jesus went to hell for a little while as part of his pain for our sins, which also contradicts Scripture. Neither of those ideas is supported by this passage, and both are contradicted by other passages in the Word of God. So what does this mean? 
Notice that verse 19 says, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Here's an interesting fact. The term spirits, when used in the New Testament without further definition or modifying adjectives, always refers to angels or demons. Always. So the spirits being referred to in this verse are not the spirits of people. They are demonic spirits. And the verse says Jesus preached to them. Interestingly, the word preached in this verse is not the Greek verb for preaching the gospel. This is not euangelizo or euangelizomai. This word means to make an announcement, to make a proclamation. So Jesus made an announcement or a proclamation to the spirits in prison. What spirits are Peter talking about? The first part of verse 20 answers that. It says, Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine suffering waited in the days of Noah. Now maybe you're saying that clears up the whole thing. I got it, right? What, what is Peter saying here? He says in verse 19 that Jesus made an announcement or a proclamation to some spirits. And he tells us in this verse that he's referring to spirits who did something back in the days of Noah. That points us right back to Genesis 6, which we looked at earlier, where we see the group of angels who cohabited with women. And here in 1 Peter 3, we are told that Jesus went to these spirits in prison, and he made a proclamation to them. He made an announcement to them. What was it? We can't say for sure, but the indication is that it was a proclamation of victory over them and an announcement of judgment. So, let me summarize. The Lord Jesus, between his death and resurrection, while dead in the flesh, but acting in his spiritual nature, went to the place of confined angels. There he announced judgment for them, which he had just accomplished and sealed at the cross. And after all, that is exactly Peter's point in 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter's point in bringing up all this about the angels who sin is to illustrate the point that it is absolutely, positively certain that God is going to judge false teachers someday. That's his point. Let's not get lost in all of these details and forget his point. His point is this. If God didn't let Fallen angels get away with sinful, shameful, heinous activity. Neither will he let false teachers get away with sinful, shameful, heinous activity. So even though it's not a popular topic, even though it's not politically correct to talk about, the fact of the matter is that God is going to judge people someday. He is going to judge false teachers especially, and he is going to judge all of mankind. And that includes you. If you didn't know it before, you know it now. You can't claim ignorance. Acts 17, 31 and 32 says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. In other words, God commands you. God commands you to repent and receive his son, Jesus Christ. Please hear that message. 
God, a lot of times people say, oh, I wish God would just speak to me and, and say something to me personally. Okay, here it is. Here's what God is saying to you personally. God commands you to repent and receive his son, Jesus Christ. If you don't, you will be damned when you face the judgment of God. And Peter's point here in our text in 2 Peter 2, listing all of these examples of judgment, is to say, listen, if God demonstrated his holiness and righteousness in the past by carrying out judgment, then don't doubt that he will carry out judgment in the future. He is going to judge. And that includes everyone who has rejected his son and his ways. Let's bow together in closing. If you're here today without a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, without a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to hear this message. That God commands you to repent and receive His Son, Jesus Christ, by faith. God commands you to submit to Him. If you don't, you will face the fearsome judgment of God, and you will have no one to blame but yourself. You can't claim ignorance. You've heard it today. If this is the only time you've ever heard it, you've still heard it today from God's Word. So if you're here without a relationship to Jesus Christ, if you've not surrendered to Him, then this very moment, right where you are seated in the quietness of your own heart, I urge you, I urge you to let go of whatever is holding you back and surrender your life to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith. And don't leave here choosing to face the judgment of God. Our Father, may we be willing to be faithful and true to what your word teaches, even though it's, it's not popular, it's not welcomed in our day and age. This, all this talk about judgment, people react to it and say it's just scare tactic, it's manipulation. But the fact is, it is what you have said in your word. It is true. It will happen with absolute certainty. May we be faithful in proclaiming that. Proclaiming it with a broken heart, not with glee that people are going to be judged, but with a burden on our hearts that men and women repent of sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith before they enter a Christless eternity. We pray these things in his precious and magnificent name. Amen.